grateful that we get the chance to gather this morning, and as is already mentioned, today is Father's Day, so we just want to give a special um, shout out to our fathers and let you know that we love you, we value, we see you, and also um, I know that Father's Day for some of us is a hard day, whether we've lost a father, whether that means we don't have a good relationship with our father or our kids, um, and so we want you to know that you are not alone, that God is with you, that we as a family are with you, um, and Lastly in that is just that we have a gift for fathers. Um, on the table here as you leave, um, there are some gift cards that we just want to bless you simply with a meal, um, something to say we thank you for being a good father. But with that, um, let's jump in. All right. So my name is Caleb. I think I know most of you guys in the room. Um, but if not, I have the privilege of serving as our worship director. Um, but this morning, um, I am going to be leading us through, um, continuing that, leading us through the book of Ephesians in our series. Um, so I'm excited, grateful. Um, I also, as some of you guys may know, when I do teach, um, I like to have interactive teaching. I think that's helpful for me to know that um, you guys are tracking with me and paying attention. Um, and so if there's something that is said or a scripture that's read that really resonates with you, feel free to say amen or come on or hoot and holler, whatever you want to do. Um, uh, my hope is that this can be um, uh, a teaching, but it can also be a dialogue where we are learning together through the scriptures, right? So, um, yeah, we're going to continue on our liturgy. You'll see we have some slides that usually come up that say embrace God, uh, listen to God, and this is our transition to now going from embracing God to listening to God. Over the last several months, we've been teaching, as I mentioned, through the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to just give us a little bit of context as we dive in to refresh us. So Ephesians is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a port city in what is modern-day Turkey. And at one point, Ephesus was known as the most important Greek city. And as important as the city was for the Greeks, I believe that it, this letter is equally important, if not more important, for us as a church today. Um, and so with that, in case you have missed any of our previous um, teachings um, from the series, um, I'm going to just read over us um, the overall intro and summary for our series, Ephesians, the Geography of Heaven. Though every Christian has found Jesus in the gospel, we live amidst a generation that is lost when it comes to experiencing Jesus' presence and living with him in every moment of life. No one may have taught us to do it, but most of us have caught a faith that divides heaven and earth, eternity from the everyday, and the Jesus of the Bible from the Jesus we actually have access to. Surely this is not what God wants and desires uh, for us. As a church, though, we can't settle for a version of Jesus that remains detached and disconnected from everyday life without his real presence, bringing real change for our fracturing world. As we walk through the letter to the Ephesians on Sundays, we'll see how Jesus brings heaven itself bursting into our anxious, painful, confusing, divided, mundane, everyday earthly lives. Ephesians maps out for us the geography of heaven on earth. We'll see how Jesus brings us through vistas of beauty and our stressful cubicles and classrooms, valleys of abundance to our church community, and rivers of peace through our thirsty neighborhoods. If we catch the vision, we'll never leave heaven again, and our city won't want to either. I don't know about you guys, but for me, that's a beautiful and um, a weighty um, picture of what life with Jesus can look like. And 
Um, I want that kind of life. I would imagine you guys do too, right? Okay. There we go. You guys are catching on. I like it. I like it. Okay. Cool. Um, so with reading this over us, I would love for us now to uh, just dive in and um, going to briefly talk a little bit with the first three chapters that we've gone through in the book of Ephesians have been focused on the doctrine and the theology of everything that God has done to save us in Christ Jesus. But Paul begins to make a shift here in chapter 4 through 6 to an exhortation or encouragement on how we are to live and obey in light of what God has done in making us his daughters and sons. And this brings us to our text this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Um, in case you are new to the Bible, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians is towards the back of the Bible in the New Testament. Um, a corny way that I remember where it is, is General Electric Power Company. So that's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. So we're going to be in Ephesians. Um, but also, um, it will be on the screen to my right for everyone to follow along if you don't have a Bible with you. Um, that just remind me, we actually have Bibles over here on the table. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give this to you. Um, so feel free to take it, whether it's now or at the end of the gathering, even giving it to somebody is okay as well, too. But if you're willing and able, would you stand with us as we stand in reverence um, for the reading of God's word? I'm going to read this for us. Ephesians 4, 1-6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God, that you are over all, that you are through all, and you are in all. Um, we submit our lives to you this morning. Holy Spirit, we know that you are here amongst us. Um, we don't have to ask you to be here, but we do want to invite you to move and to have your way. We um, pray that you would move our hearts um, to truly be able to listen to you, God, and what you want to say to us this morning. I pray that if there's anything that comes out of my mouth that is not beneficial for the building up of your church, would you let it go in one ear and out the other? And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give me focus um, to be able to, um, to the best of my ability, correctly um, articulate what you have to say to us this morning. We love you, we trust you, and we know that you are here. So we ask this in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Again. This part will be a little interactive, so I'm going to ask a question, and I would love for you guys to just shout out answers. So the question is this. What are the main essential ingredients or aspects that must be present in a Christian community or church? Again, what are the main essential ingredients or aspects that must be present in a Christian community or church? God-centered. Okay. Unity. Okay. Love, okay. Prayer. Prayer, okay. The Bible, okay. A couple more. Unity, okay. We had a, we got two unities. Any other? It's okay if not. 
Humility. Mm, come on. I like that. Okay. Um, well, my thunder was stolen a little bit, but unity is what we will be talking about today. Um, but it is all right. It is all right, because that's beautiful, and it is absolutely good and essential. So, but with that, I would say that all of us would assent to unity as good, but I think Paul has something very specific to teach us about unity. And so this morning, I would like to propose um, that one of the most overlooked aspects of the Christian life is actually one of the most important aspects of a healthy, growing Christian community. And again, what I'm talking about is unity and the body of Christ. So my main point this morning is this. So if you catch nothing from the teaching except for this, please hear this. Unity is essential for the church to pursue, and we do, not, we do it through the with God life. Again, unity is essential for the church to pursue, and we do it through the with God life. Here we go. Amen. Unity is the state of being undivided or a oneness. Maybe another simple handle for understanding unity and how it's often referred to in the Bible is that in biblical unity, there is no active hostility between one another. And secondly, and I think this is the part that we miss often, there is no passive withholding of ourselves from one another. So I want to say that again because I think that's really important. Um, in biblical unity, there is no active hostility between one another. And secondly, there is no passive withholding of ourselves from one another. I think it's also important this morning that we understand that unity is not uniformity. So the goal of unity is to not make us all the exact same. God has made us and wired us very beautifully different than one another. And also, the unity is not found in the absence of conflict. In fact, I would say it's actually the opposite of that. Unity can only be had through conflict. It's how we engage and treat one another in the midst of conflict. It's how we work through the inevitable conflict that will come from doing life with people who think, act, look, and experience the world very different than us. There is both beauty and challenge in our diverse unity that we have in Jesus. So with this, we're going to ask three questions this morning. All right. The first question is, is unity in the church really that important? And if so, how do we get it? That's kind of a Paul run-on sentence question there, so it's actually one. So in, is unity in the church really that important? If so, how do we get it? Secondly, if it is that important, how do we maintain unity? And then lastly, what do we do with unity? So the first section. Is unity in the church really that important? And if so, how do we get it? So we're going to begin with just a few observations from the text. So at the very beginning, the Apostle Paul begins chapter 4 with this. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. This word urge should catch our attention. Commentators argue that Paul's command here um, in the original Greek language carries with it a severity and weightiness to not just hurry, but rather a do or act immediately with all of your being, your head, your heart, and your hands. Paul's saying that there is a gravitas and utmost importance to how we're called to live and embody unity in the church. Second observation, he uses the word one seven times. That's a lot of times in this short amount of space. And he culminates in verse 4 with, there is one body. Third observation. He says in verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He's saying that you and I should be eager, we should be zealous, we should be fervent to maintain unity. Theologian John Stott says this. 
He says, the apostle tells us to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. The Greek verb for eager, spaudazantes, I'm not going to pretend to speak Greek, I'm just reading, um, <laughs> is emphatic. It means that we are to spare no effort, and being a present participle, it is a call for continuous, diligent activity. Marcus Barth expresses the sense vividly. It is hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant involving his will, his sentiment, reason, physical strength, and total attitude. The imperative mood of the participle found in the Greek text excludes passivity, quietism, a wait-and-see attitude, or a diligence tempered by all deliberate speed. Yours is the initiative. Do it now. Mean it. You are to do it. I mean it. Such are the overtones in verse 3. That is a lot there, but in a nutshell, what he's saying is that do it. Really simply. He's, he's pulling a Nike. He's saying just do it. All right. Um, so Paul makes it clear that unity is essential and one of the most distinguishing factors in things about the church. You and I do not have the choice. We do not get to do hostility towards one another, but actually we are called to walk in unity with one another. You see, unity is not just the icing on the cake, but it is actually indispensable and it should be present in every church body. Um, lastly, he says something that um, answers our question that I think would be really helpful for us. In verse 3, he says, we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This is important for us because we do not create unity, but God has actually given us the gift of unity. All right? So Jesus is the one who died to unite us to him and one another. Through Jesus' relational presence with us, we actually have unity with one another. The walls of hostility towards one another have been broken down between us, and we have been given the gift of unity, both with God and with man. We should be able to say, any friend of Jesus is a friend of mine. Any friend of Jesus is a friend of mine. So with this, we're going to actually go one step further from what Paul says to what Jesus says. Again, it'll be on the screen to my right here. In John chapter 17, I would love to read this over us. But this is Jesus on the night of his betrayal. He prays specifically for his disciples, and then he transitions, and he prays a prayer over all those who would believe. So that is you and I. He says this, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that is us, that we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I give to them, I've given to them, sorry, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. It's John 17, 20 to 23. I find this fascinating because Jesus could have prayed anything in that moment. He could have prayed that we would endure through suffering um, that would inevitably come. He could pray for healing for people. He could have prayed for all of these great things. But in that moment, the very thing that he chose to pray for us was that we would have unity. Think about that for a moment. With his very last prayer, again, before that he went to the cross, Jesus prayed unity over you, and he prayed unity over me. 
a pastor, um, Hollinsa, who's a friend of mine and somebody that I really admire and look up to, um, says this. He says, unity is such a big deal within God's church because it's about undoing. Unity is about undoing what sin did to us. It always divides. It always separates. It always splinters us from God. Our desires from his desires, us from each other. We can say that one of the major reasons why Jesus went to the cross is so that you and I may have unity once again. The unity that we once had with him, that we once had with each other before sin came in, before the fall. We're going to recap here. You and I do not create unity. God created unity and gave it to us as a gift. Um, And Paul and Jesus believe that unity is not optional for us as a church, but rather it is essential. And as followers of Jesus, um, we don't have a choice but to maintain unity in the church. So this leads us to our second question that we asked this morning. So if unity is of the utmost importance and that it is a gift of God, then how do you and I maintain unity. I would like to tell a story that I think will be able to help articulate this in a way. So um, if you don't know me, I love basketball. It is one of my joys and passions in life. And uh, I actually had the opportunity to play basketball in college. And I do just want to be really clear. I had the best seat in the house that was usually on the end of the bench. But nonetheless, um, I was on the team. Um, But uh, whenever we'd have a scrimmage or a game, um, our coach and all of our players and our assistant coaches, we'd get together and we'd watch game film or tape together. And so during this time, uh, coach would say something like, uh, Price, you did really good on these few things, but you missed a block out on the rebound, or you did not close out properly with your hand up. And these were things that we talked about over and over and over in practice. And so me, like most of the players, or whoever it was he was talking to would say, something of the sort, Coach, we always talk about this. You know that I closed out properly. You know that I blocked out. And he'd say, Okay, with a big smile on his face, and he'd say, the big eye, don't lie. Let's see what happened. Meaning the camera is the big eye, right? So he would play the film back, and of course, exactly how he said, because he has an incredible memory, you missed the block out, and you missed the closeout on the rebound. And so like, it was just this thing that we talked about it so much that we often assumed that we were doing something. And so I think this is similar for us as a church. We, too, can talk about something so much or even mentally assent to a belief, and yet be unaware that we actually are living out, uh, we actually are not living out the very things we are saying are so important and essential to our lives. So then the question for us, what is the big I don't lie for you and for me? Oftentimes it's hard for us to see it ourselves. That's why, again, we had the film, the big I looking at us to be able to share with us what we were missing out on. And so in the same way, God has given us the gifts of community, He's given us the gift of the Spirit. He's given us the gift of the Word to be able to point out these things. And we believe that God can and he does use any of them to highlight the reality of life for us. And I think this is normally how we function in the church. I would imagine that there is not a person in this room today who would say the unity is actually not good and it's not important and we don't need to worry about it. Am I right? Maybe there was somebody who would say that, but (laughs) I would imagine that's probably not true. Um, But just like my basketball story, We often assume that we are living into um, unity with each other, but then when we actually zoom out and we see not just in our church, but in the Big C Church, we see a lot of disunity. We see disunity marked by arguments and conflict over things like politics and its place in or outside of the church, racial justice 
gifts of the Spirit, baptism, ghosting one another when we've been hurt or offended, gossip about others, contemporary music versus choir and hymns, judging and criticizing those who are different than us. Maybe you grew up in a church who you weren't allowed to have drums. Um, you name it. The list goes on and on and on and on. But Paul is saying something profound and downright hard here. He's saying we are urged to walk in the manner worthy of our calling as children of God to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul's saying that part of our calling as Christians is to maintain unity. Most of us don't think about that. We think of what is my calling? What am I supposed to do with my job? Who am I supposed to marry? Who am I supposed to do these things? But actually part of your calling as a follower of Jesus is to maintain unity in the church. He's saying again that you and I do not get to choose hostility towards one another, but instead unity. So if we're called to pursue unity together, how do we actually do this? Paul gives us guidance here um, that can actually maintain the unity the Spirit of God has brought us. In a nutshell, the overarching umbrella, if you'd say, is we maintain unity by following Jesus through the Spirit. But Paul is going to give us three or four, depending on how you define each handles in verse 2, for how we can actually do this. So number one, I think Tiffany might have said it, humility. So humility is one of the things that he gives us. Humility is actually despised in our age. We live in an age of self-expression, carefully discerning our own desires and feelings and expressing them with the expectation that everyone else will fall in line with us. Humility might be the opposite of self-expression. Rather than us looking within, it requires us to look outside of ourselves. Two quotes to help us understand humility a little bit better is one is by author C.S. Lewis. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Another is from John Piper, who's a pastor and author. And this is this was gut-wrenching and like cut me to the core, so I pray it would do the same for you in a good way. Uh, every good thing in the Christian life grows in the soil of humility. Without humility, every virtue and every grace withers. That's why John Calvin said humility is first, second, and third in the Christian faith. I want to read that again just because I think that's so good for us. Every good thing in the Christian life grows in the soil of humility. Without humility, every virtue and every grace withers. That's why John Calvin said, humility is first, second, and third in the Christian faith. As I was writing this, I was trying to think of what is a practical example in my life and even in the church of where I have got to experience um, the unity through humility. Um, and there was an example that came to my mind and just um, part of my story is somewhere along the lines, I don't know where I got this, but I had this thought that as a church, we should only sing a language that is the dominant uh, language of our church community. And so um, we went through a season we first planted as a church where multiple people in our congregation asked if we could sing us songs in Spanish. I had people on staff ask us, uh, ask me that personally, and just to be honest, I was very downright like rejecting it. I did not want to do that. I was like, that's not a good idea. I just dismissed it. But then just after um, some time of uh, prayer, self-reflection, talking with my community, and talking with some of our friends um, with the Ethnos Network, which is one of the church planting networks we're a part of, um, I actually began to see that the beauty and the necessity of not only creating a welcoming environment, 
but also how that this could be a formation tool for us to grow and humbly learn to love and appreciate that God's kingdom is bigger than any one culture or language. And I got to actually experience this in a very real way one Sunday. Um, there is a Latina girl, a college student in our church, who um, approached me after one of our Sunday gatherings, and she thanked me for singing in Spanish. And I said, I mean, you're welcome. I don't know if I really did much other than that, but in that, I, I asked her kind of like why that was so important for her. And she had said that she invited her parents to the gathering, and they came, and they barely speak English, and don't, and so Spanish is their primary language. And so she said in that moment, they actually got to experience um, like being loved, and they tangibly got to experience the unity of God through our church. Um, and so I think for me that was um, another humbling moment where I got to see that actually um, through humbling myself to listen to people, listening to God, um, that we could actually create a space that provided a welcoming and loving environment for people, and then it also would be formative for us as a church moving forward. So if you have ever wondered why we sing songs from time to time in Spanish, that is why. So, the second thing that Paul gives us is this. He says gentleness. Often when we hear the word gentleness, we think of someone who is weak, is non-confrontational. I think Jesus shows us quite the opposite um, throughout the Gospels, but in particular in John chapter 8 with the woman who is caught in adultery. Um, after um, all the people come and they're wanting Jesus to stone this woman, um, you fast forward to the end of the story. And Jesus says to her, very lovingly and gently, but direct, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, meekness refuses to use the world's power to get what one wants. He says, I'm not going to dominate you in order to change you. One commentator says this. He says, so meekness is not a synonym for weakness. Actually, on the contrary, it is the gentleness of the strong, whose strength is under control, it is a quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless master of himself and the servant of others. Meekness is the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights, either in the presence of God or of men. Again, I was thinking of a practical example of this. And many of you guys know um, my wife, Jen. And if you don't, she's right there. Um, she probably hates me right now for putting attention on her. Um, but we are married, but at one point before we were engaged, before we were dating, we were just friends. Um, and so we were a part of this church, the Commons LA, when we launched. We were in a missional community together, and we were growing our friendship. And um, just all vulnerability and honesty with you, one of the sin patterns in my life that God has exposed to me is that I very much desire to be known and to be loved and approved of. And so one of the ways that I have found that I can usually get that is if I'm goofy and I tell jokes and I make people laugh. Because in, in so, I feel that people actually like love me and care for me and approve of me. And so, with that being said, um, when I came to plant with the Commons LA, I found myself kind of repeating that pattern of trying to be the funny guy that was always making jokes and people laughing. And so, uh, one day, my wife, friend at the time, um, kindly pulled me aside and um, since we had been in community together, she knew my desire to grow in leadership and ministry and one day to be a pastor. And so um, she very gently um, but directly said something of the sort that um, I know your desires for to be a leader, to grow in maturity. And um, when you 
act in such a way, the goofiness, the always joking, you actually begin to undermine um, the very maturity that God is growing in you, and you actually begin to um, downplay the authority that God has actually given you. And so um, it was one of those things where Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of um, a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So she could have not said that and just kept laughing at jokes and things, but instead she wanted my best. She wanted to build me up, and so she was very direct, but very gentle in that. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes maintaining unity in the church requires awkward, hard conversations that involve conflict. Um, but I would like to say this, um, fellas, if you're in the room and you find a woman who is uh, able to give you direction and help you grow and mature in Jesus, don't run from that. Put a ring on it. If, 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 she's in, if she's interested in it. So, no, that's the kind of woman that you want to be with, is one that's going to make you uh, love Jesus more um, and to grow in maturity like him. Here I go making more jokes again. Oh, gosh. Okay, we'll keep going. So the third one that Paul gives us is patience, bearing with one another in love. The difference of these two is this. Patience, is said, is long-suffering. When we're patient with somebody, we're placing our hope in that God can fix someone, knowing that it will not always be so in this life. And then bearing with one another in love is enduring in love with someone because they may never change. Or enduring in love with them, though we do not understand what they are experiencing and going through, but nonetheless, we remain with them through the discomfort. This is who Paul is calling us to be and how you and I can maintain the unity that God has given us. So for our final section, we have come to understand that unity in the church is a top priority. We understand that we maintain the unity by following Jesus uh, through life with Holy Spirit. But then again, this begs the question, why is unity so important and what do we do with it? I'm going to answer the first part. Why is unity so important? What do we do with it? One of the beautiful things that we have found as we go through um, a book of the Bible um, week by week is that we actually get to see um, the author building upon the things that they have talked about before. And so we get to actually experience that this week as we look back on chapter 3, verses 14 to 20, which is what we've talked about the last two weeks. So if you missed it, please listen to the podcast. It's really helpful. But I'm going to read it for us. Starting in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, excuse me, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Did you catch that? Verse 16, we're strengthened with power through his, whole, through his spirit and your inner being. Verse 17, Christ may dwell in our hearts. Verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 20, according to the power at work within us. This, my friends, is the vision for the with God life. We're surrendered to Holy Spirit and walking with Jesus in moment by moment. Remember, the goal of the gospel is God dwelling among us. 
But if you and I refuse unity with one another, we refuse unity with God himself. We can't say that we want unity with God and we want him to dwell among us in a tangible and real way um, if we won't listen to him. So unity draws us into the presence of God. And then secondly, unity is so beautiful and powerful because it is not just for us inside the church, but uh, unity is also for those outside of the church as well. So let's go back to the text that we read from John 17 to kind of wrap up our time. In John 17, um, Jesus again prayed this. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. They may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus prays two things. He says that we can only be one in unity and being in and with God through his relational presence, the very thing that we have been walking and learning through the last couple of years as a church. Secondly, he prays that we would be one, particularly so that the watching world would believe. Our unity is one of the most powerful witnesses to the watching world of what God is like and what it is like to live into his kingdom. I know all this talk about unity is actually really hard to believe that it's possible in our cultural moment, right? With people constantly at odds with each other, with differing views in every aspect of the way. Um, it feels like we're looking at each other and waiting for the other person to put down their weapon so that we can actually do so as well. But my friends, if we are willing and opening to listening to God's call to unity, he promises that Holy Spirit will help us. I want to end with one more story of a beautiful display of unity, of submitting to God, and then God showing up in power. In his humanness, Jesus had all the power of his godness at his disposal. He himself said he could call legions of angels to defend him and prevent the cross. But Jesus chose the way of weakness because he knew that his Father in heaven would show up in power when he chose the way of weakness in the face of the violence of the world. In a very real way, our very salvation and our unity were accomplished through the humility, the meekness, the gentleness, the patience, and the bearing in with us in love that Jesus showed. These are the very same things that um, Paul just told us is how we can actually maintain the unity. We follow Jesus because he actually already did these things for us. The world has never been the same when Jesus exemplified these things, and we saw God's power come through. And I'm confident that if we as the church would walk into these, um, would walk into life with Jesus and with Holy Spirit and engaging with the conflict and the things that come with pursuing unity, I'm confident that God will show up in power to not only unify us and draw us together, but also to add people to um, the church worldwide to see the kingdom of God go forth, to see more people being walking in relationship with Jesus. That is the desire. That's the goal that we have as a church, is to be with Jesus and then to go and to make disciples. So let's pray together.
Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you purchased unity for us on the cross through um, your gentleness, through your patience, through your humility, your meekness. We look to you for direction. Holy Spirit, would you give us the power that we just talked about, that as we walk with you, that we actually have the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That lives inside of each and every Christian here. And so the difficulties and the challenges of pursuing unity together, uh, Lord, nothing is impossible with you. And so we trust you that this morning that you will um, help us take this, not just to be things that we got in our head, more head knowledge, and assume that we have unity, but Lord, that we'd actually live into the very unity that you are calling us to embody. Would you make much of this unity in our church? But Lord, would you also use this unity for the watching world, again, to be able to know and to understand um, who you are, God, um, what it's like to know you, but then also what your kingdom is, how we can live into your kingdom. That is the greatest desire we have. So, Jesus, make much of your name as we continue to worship. In your name we pray. Amen.